welcome to the Shep Dog Classroom Podcast with your host, Thomas Shepard. If you are enjoying this program, please consider subscribing to this podcast so you don't miss any episodes. This is Episode 7, Harry Potter and the Middle Ages. In this episode, we're going to be talking about the Middle Ages and its influence on Harry Potter with historian Mariah Cooper. And I also have a joke of the week, so stay tuned. Now, on to our podcast. We're joined today by Mariah Cooper. She's a historian of the Middle Ages, and this is a return visit for Mariah. We had such a good time last time recording about history of the Middle Ages that we invited her back. And this time, she's going to talk about the Middle Ages and what they have in common with Harry Potter. Welcome back, Mariah. Thank you for having me. Good. Well, I guess we'll get right straight to the questions. Uh, some interesting topics came up uh, when we were referring to the Middle Ages and Harry Potter. And I didn't even realize myself until I started looking into it on the internet and doing some research, just how prevalent those references are. I guess the first thing that we need to talk about is, you know, medievalism, what it is, and the things that are inspired by the Middle Ages. Right. So medievalism is really anything that is taking influence from the medieval past, uh, whether it's art, architecture, uh, storylines. And we see a lot of medieval influences in Harry Potter. They're like little Easter eggs hidden everywhere. Wow, that's interesting. So like, what would you give an example of one of those Easter eggs would be? Well, of course, there's the uh, famous Hogwarts castle that is very much inspired by medieval castles. And actually, some of it was filmed at a real medieval castle. How prominent is medievalism uh, referenced in Harry Potter over you know, the list of maybe just give us a list of the influences? It's everywhere. The more you look for it, the more you find it. Medieval influences are found everywhere in the architecture, such as the uh, Hogwarts dining hall, the Gothic fan vaulting. We see medieval influences in the tapestries, specifically in the Gryffindor common room. There's a very f- famous medieval tapestry that appears. Further medieval influences are in the set designs in the movies. Uh, Professor Dumbledore's chair is uh, taken from the coronation chair. Everything from the Latin spells using, uh, for instance, expecto patronum, I await my guardian in Latin. Medieval chemistry uh, is kind of like Professor Snape's potions class, alchemy. We also have the idea of good magic versus bad magic or the dark art. And that was very prevalent in the minds of uh, medieval thinkers. The mandrake itself is uh, was believed to be a real plant in the Middle Ages, and all these fantastical beasts, uh, dragons, unicorns, phoenix, they're very prevalent in the Middle Ages, and also some medieval people, such as Nicholas Fumel and even the Philosopher's Stone. Wow, I didn't realize how many many references that you included there. I didn't realize how prevalent it was. (laughs) Yes, yeah, it's uh, littered with medieval influences, and it seems like J.K. Rowling really knew what she was doing when she was writing these, and it, it seems more than just coincidental. That brings up a weird question. You mentioned the word gothic. And when I was talking to my students yesterday uh, online, I mentioned that uh, they said their idea of, a you know, oh, a goth. Right. I said, well, 
<laughs> it's more like to do with architecture and, and the Gothic architecture in the Middle, middle Ages. But could you explain what Gothic, the, that term, would re- reference? Sure. So it actually derives from the Gothic uh, people who sacked Rome, destroyed the beautiful Roman capital. And after that, we see the development of really high buildings with big uh, spires on them and these uh, what's called fan vaulting. Uh, it's really, if you, if you Google it and you see the images, you'll know immediately. It's a very distinguished form of architecture. At the, point, at the uh, time, it was considered kind of ugly. So that's where we get the, the term goth from, because the goths were those evil people that destroyed Rome. If it was considered like, like uh, not a very, uh, I guess, a negative thing, then how any idea how that ended up being a part of the architecture? You don't think about something that's ugly, putting it into architecture. Yeah, so I think I'm again. I'm not an entire um, specialist on Gothic architecture, but I believe that Canterbury Cathedral in Kent, Southern England, that's one of the earliest forms of uh, Gothic cathedral in England. And it's the idea of you're building taller, and it was closer to God, higher up in the sky, and eventually that became associated with holiness. What are some of your favorite uh, medieval references in Harry Potter? If you're looking for specific Gothic architecture, uh, you find it with the film set in the movies. They use Gloucestershire Cathedral, and they specifically use the medieval cloister, which is a beautiful display of Gothic architecture. It was developed uh, around the uh, early 15th century, and it's used in, I believe, the first two movies specifically, uh, where the in the Philosopher's Stone, where the trolls coming through the uh, the hallway. It's also the film location of where uh, the Chamber of Secrets is open for the second movie, and that is really um, a gorgeous display of uh, very elegant fan vaulting. It's on the later side of the Middle Ages, so the uh, the development of the Gothic architecture at that point is uh, much more elaborate and detailed than the earlier forms of Gothic architecture. Now, there's also really fantastic, uh, much earlier Gothic architecture in uh, the Allenwood Castle, where it was used as uh, exterior shots of Hogwarts Castle, specifically in the first movie where they did uh, flying lessons. And that's dating from around the early 14th century. So that leads up to Ben's question. I had a student, Ben, ask me to ask you, is Hogwarts a real castle? Yeah, it's one of those things that it's both a yes and no question. Uh, Unfortunately, Hogwarts is not real in its entirety, but parts of it are taken from very real buildings. Uh, So I mentioned the castle in Northern England, as well as Gloucestershire Cathedral and also, Oxford University was used. So it's real in the sense that bits and pieces were taken from this beautiful medieval building. Uh, but as a whole, unfortunately, Hogwarts is not real. Oh, darn. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so uh, one of the things I would have wanted to clarify here is that you do mention a couple times the word cloister. Can you explain that, what, what, what that means? Sure. So a cloister is is a walkway around a cathedral that would uh, go out onto a center garden or green space. It's usually open to uh, the elements outdoors, so there, it tends to have sunlight coming in, and it's where uh, the monks would live. When we were talking about Hogwarts Castle, I remember us talking about the Grand Hall or the Great Hall, and you mentioned that there was all kinds of medieval references or medieval architecture in that hall. Can you explain a bit more about that? 
Sure. So the Great Hall, where all those fantastic Hogwarts feasts take place, that is uh, filmed in uh, Oxford University's Christ Church Dining Hall. Uh, we know that teaching in Oxford has been taking place since the late 10 hundreds, if you can believe that. Wow. And that hall is a it's a Tudor construction from the Tudor medieval or late medieval dynasty. And it was completed around the 1520s. I think that a lot of our students would would know, having seen a lot of those movies in particular, and I read the books that, that the Great Hall features a lot in the in the book because that's a, a lot of scenes occur there. So you mentioned also about tapestries. Can you explain a little bit what a tapestry is and give us an example of how that is a medieval or Middle Ages reference in Harry Potter? Sure. Tapestries are kind of large fabric pictures, I suppose, that are woven together. And they used to hang inside the castles. Uh, Unfortunately, when we look at tapestries today from the Middle Ages, they're often dingy and they've lost a lot of their vibrant color just due to hundreds of years of existence. But really, uh, medieval tapestries back in the Middle Ages were these beautiful, vibrant, warm Uh, hanging wall pictures. They were used both uh, as art and also quite pragmatically to keep the heat in the castles from the fire. Well, that's interesting too, because I always think about like when we're growing up, like drafty windows, you'd have to cover them somehow, right? (laughs) So I would think castles are a little bit drafty. Yes. Yeah. And tapestries (laughs) really helped with that. One thing, uh, other thing that you mentioned too, and we had in our previous conversations when preparing for this uh, episode, you mentioned about the thrones and how the thrones that you see sometimes or mentioned in Harry Potter are references for the from the Middle Ages. Can you explain that as well? Yeah, so this is something that is entirely taken from the movies. Uh, Dumbledore has a chair that he sits on when he's in the Great Hall. And I just couldn't help but think that chair is identical to the coronation throne of medieval England's kings and queens. And when I actually researched it, it's, it is intentional. There's no way around it. It is the throne that the royals sat on. Do you remember any of the particular names of the kings and queens that might have sat on that throne? Well, we know that the throne was commissioned by Edward I, Edward the Longshanks. And he asked it to be built in around 1296, and it was completed in 1300. So ever since 1300 with Edward I, every single king and our modern day queen, Elizabeth II, has sat on that throne. And it's actually, according to the Westminster Abbey website, it is the oldest piece of uh, furniture in the UK that is still used for its original purpose. And you mentioned earlier about Herbology and the Mandrake. Actually, you said that. I'm like, I was really surprised. I don't hear about what a Mandrake plant is. I mean, I'm not really into Herbology myself, but in the movies, you hear see about the, the Mandrake being being used. And you mentioned that it was a, a plant believed to exist in the Middle Ages. Do you know any more information about that? Yeah, I was actually kind of surprised when I researched this myself. I was uh, looking at a British library manuscript. I think we're going to probably include the link to it. And it is a herbology textbook talking about what all these plants do and how they can heal you. And in it is an image of a plant that has a human form. And it actually says in this in the side of it, it's a mandrake. And it was believed that just like in Harry Potter, these plants have healing powers. I was listening to a podcast the other day, medieval podcast that you suggested that I listen to. 
And when they mentioned about how uh, they use different plants and different uh, herbs. So it was in, really interesting to bring up her, herbology and how it evolved. And, and they found out what worked by trying it. Yeah, which was probably a, a messy situation. You know, we tried the wrong plant and look out. We want to be listening to a mandrake singing, do we? <laughs> no, you don't want to be Neville Longbottom. <laughs> no, definitely not. We also talked in our in the, at the beginning about the belief in magic and witchcraft and dark arts and these type of things, which feature prominently in Harry Potter. So people living in the Middle Ages, what did they believe around witchcraft and dark arts and that kind of thing? In the medieval mind, there was no doubt that good magic existed and bad magic existed. And you just have to look at their belief system of Christianity to, to see this. I mean, a saint who performs healing powers that is a form of good magic. And with that, there's also if the fear and a very real fear of bad magic or dark arts. If a, if a crop failed, there was a belief that there could be an evil witch in the community. Now, if, uh, if you had uh, leprosy or a very bad illness and you prayed to a saint or the Virgin Mary and you got healed, that's proof that there was good magic. So when we see in Harry Potter this uh, defense against the dark arts and the fact that there's these dark wizards, that was a very real concern for the medieval mind. Other things that, whether it's myth or legend or what, is mentioned in, in, and I guess it was most recent Harry Potter films, Fantastic Beast. You're not going to totally disillusion me this morning and and tell me that dragons don't exist, are you? (laughs) (laughs) Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them. Uh, That is essentially a blueprint of the medieval bestsellers known as bestiaries. These were really, really popular books that were explaining all these fantastic creatures, both real and not real, and where to find them. Now, the medieval mindset truly did believe that lions existed somewhere in the world, elephants existed somewhere in the world, and so did unicorns, and so did dragons. And it's not hard to think about if you're a, let's say, a peasant in uh, medieval Germany and you're told that lions exist somewhere. Well, you're never going to see them. And when you are told that also unicorns and dragons exist, it's it's kind of logical. Like, oh, I don't see these fantastic beasts because they don't live near me. So that was like a rational, like a rationalization about why we don't see them. But, you know, they exist. Yeah. So there's both uh, these what we would consider nowadays real creatures. Uh, Zebras, for instance, that live in Africa. Well, they're not going to be seen in medieval Europe, but that doesn't mean they're not real. Even today, if you never see these creatures, we know that they exist. Um, So the medieval mind was trying to rationalize why they never happened to see these these creatures. And what's quite interesting, there's this funny story where someone claims that they found the horn of a unicorn. And we know that unicorns were believed to have magical powers in the Middle Ages just like they, you know, believe to have magical powers in Harry Potter. And they found the horn, and we're pretty positive that it was a Norwal's horn that washed up on shore. <laughs> uh, there goes that belief shot right down, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm going to hang on to uh, a little belief in dragons after all. I mean, you, know, you never know. <laughs> no, dragons are, uh, dragons, there is a lot of uh, so-called proof in thunderstorms that uh, the the lightning was a distant fire breath, uh, the thunder was a dragon fight. 
And uh, there is just a lot of stories about dragons existing. And actually in a in medieval chronicle during the Anglo-Saxon times, we have a few eyewitness reports that a dragon did fly over England. So there's still hope. <laughs> there's still hope. <laughs> so talking about what's real and what's not real in Harry Potter, you did mention as well that one of the characters or one of the references in there is actually a real person in the Middle Ages, Nicholas Flamel. So I found that very interesting because you also said that like the Philosopher's Stone is something that existed in the Middle Ages as well. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. Nicholas Flamel is uh, brought up in the very first book as Dumbledore's friend who helped uh, make the Philosopher's Stone. And clearly J.K. Rowling did her homework because Nicholas Flamel existed in Paris in France, in the Middle Ages, uh, around the mid 14th century. He is uh, believed to have discovered the Philosopher's Stone. And in the Middle Ages, the Philosopher's Stone could turn any old metal into gold. So this was a very prized commodity. (laughs) So it was a little bit different than what uh, was used for in in Harry Potter. Yes. Yeah, it wasn't Voldemort uh, defeating Black Magic Stone. It was a wealthy... Get rich quick. <laughs> <laughs> well, I like to, there's lots of sta- uh, fairy tales in, in children's literature about, you know, the goose that laid the golden egg type of thing. Well, thank you very much for joining me this morning. I think that was really, really interesting. Is there anything that you wanted to bring up that we didn't talk about, but references from Harry Potter and the Middle Ages? Because there's so much there. I was uh, really taken back by how much of the Middle Ages is actually in Harry Potter. Yeah, um, I would just uh, like to bring up the fact that the, uh, the, the specific tapestry that I was uh, slightly referencing is really quite a beautiful medieval tapestry. And uh, if it's called the Lady in the Unicorn series, and I'd, I'd love it if we could provide a link to it, because I think there's a lot of misconception about how dingy and dirty the Middle Ages was. And if there's anything that can give people a little bit of perception on the beauty of medieval art, it is the Lady in the Unicorn tapestry. It is quite gorgeous. And it was a uh, prominent. It was uh, prominent in the Gryffindor common room in the movies. So, where did the tapestry originally come from, or who created it, or do you know, like, where if all of a sudden came up in the Middle Ages, it was was it created for someone in particular or a castle in particular? It was uh, created as a six part story. Uh, so, there's actually six tapestries, and it's from uh, around the 1500s. And it's kind of part two of this tapestry story because part one is called The Hunt of the Unicorn. And it's where they go out and the men go out and they find this unicorn in the wild with all their dogs and they capture it and they tame it. And then we have the the lady in the unicorn tapestry, which we're not really entirely sure what the, the story is. But all six of the installments have something to do with senses, smell, touch, sight. Uh, we can include links in the show notes to people so that they can actually bring this up and see them. And I really think that uh, once uh, my students listen to this podcast, they're going to find a lot of the references to the Middle Ages fascinating, not realizing that, hey, you know, maybe J.K. Rowling kind of borrowed a few things from the Middle Ages to tell her stories. Yeah, I always encourage my students, even at the university level, to go find medieval influences, what I call in the wild, uh, where everywhere we look, there is some some hints of the medieval past still around for sure. 
Well, thank you very much for doing this. I really appreciate it. We always have a good time when you're on that podcast and you always bring up some fascinating details about the Middle Ages and dispel a few myths and make a few connections with the world today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And now it's time for Joke of the Week, back by popular demand. Okay, I'm the only one that wanted it back, but still, you know, you're still going to enjoy it. So I'm going to tie this joke in with the theme of the Middle Ages. Before I tell the joke, you have to understand what a page is. In the Middle Ages, there were knights, and knights had servants called pages. I'm with the joke. If you Google Last medieval servant boy, what would you get? You get the message, page cannot be found. I guess they didn't really appreciate that one. Oh well, try to do better next time. You have been listening to Shep Dog's Classroom Podcast. If you are enjoying this program, please consider subscribing to the podcast in Apple Podcast. Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcast, or from wherever you download your podcast. The theme music used in this podcast was created by Robbie Lee. Thank you for listening. <laughs> <laughs>